This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have as our guest Alex Handria from Columbia. She's at the Peace and Conflict Studies um, Institute at Otago University. And her thesis is on to what extent soldiers from the state army in Colombia contributed with the, to a creation of a pervasive environment of violence. And she worked as a consultant to the Colombian army Armed Forces and the Center for Historical Memory in Colombia. Could you briefly tell us about your family's history and your life in Colombia? Sure. First, thank you for inviting me. Well, I grew up in Bogota, that is the capital city of Colombia. There is around 7,500,000 people. Uh, however, my family is from Cali, that is in the southwest of Colombia, close to the Pacific Ocean. I'm a single child of a single mother who is an educator. She believes that education liberates the mind and may help us to fight uh, the, against the power imbalance in society. So in my house, we probably didn't have much money, but I grew up surrounded by a lot of books. <laughs> that sounds very familiar. <laughs> well, why did you... Um well, first, could you talk about Colombia's history in the second half of the 20th century and the first and the beginning of the 21st century and the conflict there? Well, um, it's a huge question in terms of history stuff in Colombia. I don't want to be unfair with historical events, but I probably prefer to mention it that Colombia have a historical paradox. Colombia is one of the oldest democracy in Latin American region. But we also coexist with a civil war. We never had some sort of a dictatorship like Argentina, Chile, or Uruguay, or even Brazil. But this coexistence between a civil war and a democratic institution with elections and so on make Colombia uh, different from others in the region. and. I will say that this is one of the most interesting things to when you talk about Colombian history. So what's the Civil War about and when did it start? It may have started before the 20th century, for all I know. Yeah. We have a Civil War for more than 15 decades, like five decades already, six maybe. And But I will say that the... In the heart of the violence of Colombia, the problem is about land. Colombia ownership is one of the most concentrated in the world. And, and you can track it back uh, into the Spanish colonization, for example. So the problems and the tension of the, or if you want to say, the roots of the civil war in Colombia are highly connected with land disposition and a few families who are the ones who who control the main economic resources. So 
Yes, that's connected with the part of the roots of the conflict in Colombia, historically talking as well. Does that experience, does it bother you when you see other countries become more more unequal or when you see inequality grow? Actually, Colombia is one of the most unequal societies in Latin America. Uh, even though our like paper capital looks really good. If you look into the GDP, we are one of the uh, have we have a huge gap between the rich people and the poor people, and it, like and you can see it in terms of education. For example, the system of education in Colombia is basically private. If you born in a poor family. Uh, you go to the public schools, but the rich people never send their kids to the public schools. So there is actually no incentives to invest in public education uh, because if you want to, pro- it's, it's pretty similar to the model in the states, for example, that if you want to have like a kind of social mobility, you need to go to certain universities that usually are private. And well, that's the kind of the, your socioeconomic a possibility. So there is very few people who have access to high quality education. So growing inequality or inequality actually has really dramatic results, doesn't it, on everybody's life? Totally. And you can add another layer and it's the rural and urban division in Colombia. Um, if you go to Bogota or you visit uh, Medellin or Cali, there are the three other big cities uh, in, in Colombia, you, and you visit, for example, the, the, the main areas where the business are, you cannot imagine that there are this kind of poverty because they are like very wealthy places. Uh, but all of this money is concentrated for certain areas. But if you go to the periphery, where is actually where the war is located, there is people who live in very, very uh, poor conditions. So this coexistence between very rich people, very poor people, uh, a kind of a, a sort of democratic system, all of all of these different layers combine it, uh, make the social tension and are in the heart of the civil war in Colombia. Could you tell us what led you to work as a consultant to the Colombian armed forces? And the National Center for Historical Memory. Well, as probably many things that change people's life, <laughs> my job as a consultant for the Colombian Army was a mix between casualty, curiosity, and opportunity. After graduating from my master, I was lecturer at some universities in Colombia, and I was looking for an additional job to pay my student loan. That happened during the peace negotiation, and a friend of mine, she worked in the National Center of Historical Memory, that is a governmental institution in charge of the symbolic and symbolic reparation and dignity of the victims of war. They also have the responsibility to build the conflict memory by incorporating the multiple voices of the actors uh, in conflict, especially the victims, to comprehend the structural conditions that facilitate decades of political violence. But that center published a book in 2013. And that book report that uh, members of the state forces were implicated in violations of human rights, including um, the cooperation with the paramilitary groups. And all of these have a huge um, consequence uh, in the army. They, they react of obviously very defensive to these kind of like, accusations. Uh, and at that time, the government was talking with uh, the, the, the FARC, that is the main guerrilla groups uh, group in Colombia, in, uh, in the Havana, Cuba. And but in the ground, I mean, in this, in this, in the, in the country, we were trying different <coughs> institutions were trying to, to prepare the society and all the actors to support the peace. So we know it that w- oh, the society know that they need to start like talking with all the actors and especially with the army because in the past they can act as spoilers for peace and Contrary to the common knowledge, making peace is more difficult than making war. So result is that one veteran, uh, after this publication, uh, he approached the people in the center of history memory, including my friend, and he told, <coughs> uh, 
he asked them like, hey, can you recommend me a civilian with your profile to work for us? We need someone who can see us with a little bit of neutrality and and that can probably address difficult question to us that probably our own consultants are unable to say it because probably they are afraid to do it, we don't know. So we need someone with fresh eyes. So I was nominated. Uh, I accepted to participate in, in a group interview. They did a group interview. And to be honest with you, um, I, I I thought that they will not select me because the first question to, to the, the, my answer to the first question in the interview, the question was like, do you think that the army is an actor of the conflict? Most part of the people who answer before me, they say like, no, the army are the soldiers and they are the heroes and they are honored to serve the fatherlands, stuff like that. But my answer was like, yes, the army is another actor of the conflict. And I got selected. Uh, the thing is, if I had that interview today, probably they will reject me. So there was a, a window opportunity and I was in the right place with the correct people and I was in my early 20s and, and, I, and I had this encounter with an insider view uh, to people that were in the army. And, and that was also interesting for me because most part of my colleagues in Colombia, uh, they prefer sometimes to be in the side of the rebels, for example. Uh, rather than being uh, connected with the army because of the, the, what they did. But I think that this is also part of the problem. If we are incapable to humanize all the actors or have also conversation with these people that we consider our antagonist, well, you are making peace with the, between enemies, not friends. So you need to be able to talk to them. So for me, it was a very important learning process, and that changed my life completely as an academic and as a person. And, and that experience inspired my thesis and my research ag agenda until today. Okay. What, how long were you there? How in long? That row? Yeah. Well, that was 2014. Uh, then... Uh, I got another position, and my role was building a bridge between civilians' organization, particularly the Center of History and Memory, and the Army. But the uh, international government paid my salary, so they were n neither of them. They were kind of like I don't have any kind of institutional bias in, in that role, and I worked there in, in that until 2017 before coming here. What made you decide to? Uh, take up a offer of um, peace studies and do a PhD thesis peace studies at New Zealand. Well, to be honest with you, Marvin, New Zealand was not part of my plan. I got a scholarship in the UK first, uh, but apparently they changed some stuff and part of the things that they changed was the score that you need to have in the IELTS test. So I needed to do this the, the exam again, my English exam. So and I, and I was uh, presenting, uh, while well, I was presenting my second exam, I got the news from here. And I asked like, hey, I can answer in a couple of weeks so I can wait for my other results. And they said, no, you need to answer run away. And, and, and I just take it. And, and, and yeah, and I end in here. And I was, for me, was a question of an opportunity because that was 2017 after the peace referendum that we lost. So people in Colombia both vote against the peace referendum. And the extreme right wing started to get very popular for the presidential election. Actually, actually they won the presidential elections. Today, our president is from the extreme right um, uh, extreme right uh, wing party. And, and and I know it that I needed to, to do my PhD as soon as possible if I wanted to conduct a, a study that imply, um, collect data of the soldiers. Like this possibility of me visit the army institutions and interview soldiers and, and do what I did, like 
yeah, uh, required at certain political historical moment that was close, like close to close. <laughs> so it uh, was also a question of like, okay, I need this opportunity now if I want this data because I think that Colombia deserves to know what is going on in the minds and the mentality of the Colombian soldiers. So does this mean you have to go back and forth between here and Colombia? I did my fieldwork in Colombia for during four months in 2019. So yeah. you did your fieldwork before you came here? For no, this? no, no. I came here in 2018. Okay. And in 2000, I prepared my first year here, all the, like, my literature review, my instruments, uh, all the, the first part of your, my PhD, I did it. Um, here and then I traveled to Colombia in March um, 2019, and I stayed in Colombia during four months. They I got a a, um, a permission to be a visitor scholar in the School of War in Colombia. That is basically that the university of the higher ranks in 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 Bogota um, of the army and and. Yes, like they because I have certain connections that they are still uh, being like they have kind of influence. Uh, uh, I, I I have that chance. You were lucky in a way that you did this before COVID nineteen made travel yes. so much more difficult. Oh no no no, it will be impossible. <laughs> I was very lucky. Yeah. Do you know? You've already mentioned um, the inequality in the ownership of land, access to land. So, in a way, the Civil War is motivated by the different class interests, isn't it? Yes, yes, there is a lot of that part of that, yeah. If it was, that seems like a very hard subject to, how do you get people to share land voluntarily? Well, most part of the land was also um, part of the dis like land dispossession as well. So I will I, I will briefly explain to you one of the uh, phenomenons, and is that because the word civil war uh, in the periphery, many peasants they this they they got displaced or they needed to s give the lands to bigger owners because of the war. So a lot of bigger owners take some of the lands because they, they were selling cheaper or just because the people so, needed to go. So the Civil War actually increased the inequality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And is that continuing? We have internal displacement. Uh, actually, part of the, the peace agenda was the land restitution program that was kind of that the government promised to the people to return their lands. Um, but there is a lot of big entrepreneur people that they don't, they don't like that. And part of the history in Colombia is that the entrepreneur people, they actually associate with the paramilitary groups. They financial that kind of groups. And they don't want, of course, to lose their land. So that's part of the problem. Today, there are these people who want to recover their lands. They are being victims of target violence by these paramilitary. Well, people don't accept that they are paramilitary groups. They say like other groups. Uh, but yeah, they're being victims of, of, of systematic violence since the peace agreement start. I'll play some music and we'll talk some more. Sure. Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Yo soy un hombre sincero De donde crece la palma Yo soy un hombre sincero de donde crece la palma Antes de morir me quiero Echa mis versos del alma Guantanamera Guajira Guantanamera Guantanamera 
mi verso es de una verde claro y de un carmen encendido. Mis versos es de una verde claro y de un carmen encendido. Mi verso es un cielo herido que busca en el monte amparo. The words mean, I am a truthful man from the land of the palm trees. And before dying, I want to share these poems of my soul. My poems are soft green. My poems are also flaming crimson. My poems are like a wounded fawn seeking refuge in the forest. The last verse says, Con los pobres de la tierra, with the poor people of this earth, I want to share my fate. The streams of the mountain pleases me more than the sea. Con los pobres de la tierra Quiero yo mi suerte achar Con los pobres de la tierra Quiero yo mi suerte achar El arroyo de la sierra Me complace más que el mar We're talking with Alex Handera from Columbia. She's doing a PhD in Peach Studies at the Peace and Conflict Center at Otago University. Could you tell us about the, um, the other players in the Civil War? So um, we have the paramilitary groups. They got, like, in theory, they demobilized in 2002. Um, we also have um, guerrilla groups, left-wing guerrilla groups. We did a peace agreement with the FARC. We still have the ELN. And now we have dissidents of the FARC that they didn't join the peace agreement or they decided to, to not continue. Uh, and the government. We also have criminal organizations. Uh, and... And the narco-traffic as well is part of the, uh, it's another layer uh, in the, in the, as part of the conflict. Can you tell us about the um, Juan Manuel Santos who was elected as a right-wing president and, he, and the peace process and, and an agreement? which was defeated in random. Yeah, that's actually very interesting because Juan Manuel Santos, he was the Minister of Defense uh, under uh, Alvaro Uribe, who is the extreme right-wing leader in Colombia, and he is still is involved a lot in politics. He's actually the, 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 the face of the party of, the political party of the current president in Colombia, Ivan Duque. But Juan Manuel Santos, uh, he got he 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 won the elections and and he wanted to to do this this peace agreement. Uh, he actually got the Nobel Prize, uh, Nobel Peace Prize, and I will say that he did part of the 
most difficult part probably that was putting these people in Havana to negotiate. Um, he come from a very wealthy family in Colombia. So somehow this is also um, division between the upper classes in Colombia. You have the upper classes that come from certain, like the big cities, but you also have the upper classes from like uh, that they are more connected with the agro-industrial uh, approach and and they are divided. So they kind of like, they got divorced. So Uribe, he represents certain part of the elites in Colombia that are actually really connected with this land dispossession, for example. Um, uh, p people that is part of this uh, political party are the biggest owners of land. And, and Juan Manuel Santos, he comes as well from an elite, but he's an elite that still wants certain kind of neoliberalism approach, but they know or they somehow know or realize it that the war is part of the biggest obstacles to the economic and development improvement in the country. So he did an important step. Uh, however, there is a lot of people that questioning his approach, even with a peace agreement, because uh, Colombia didn't, uh, in, in comparison with other peace agreement, there is nothing related with the transformation of the central state in itself. So I give you an example. Colombia is one of the few peace agreements that didn't include a security sector reform. In other contexts, uh, the army needed to trans have a kind of transformation and the state needed to do something to transform themselves. It was not just the rebels that in Colombia is a transition from rebel group to political party. Today, FARC is a political party, but nothing happened really from the state side, which somehow sent a message that the state was good that there were nothing to transform. And I think it's a, as a, hu it's, it's a huge depth uh, in the peace agreement in itself. Uh, I mean, the Colombian context is being, it's so complex that I don't want to be unfair <laughs> with, with, with what he did. But uh, I believe that part of the ongoing violence nowadays is because we didn't do enough to question it, the state in itself, uh, and his role in the in the conflict. Okay. Um, has the army been involved with the paramilitary group, right wing paramilitary groups? Yes. The, there is a lot of evidence. Uh, there is a lot of uh, academic and activist that been pointing out that cooperation. Myself, even when I was doing my interviews, some of the soldiers told me stuff like, they called them cousins. They were our cousins. Because in some point, the war was so difficult for the army. The army didn't have enough resources. And, and the entrepreneurs in the, in the, in the rural areas, like the, the big owners, they start to arm it civilians and they become the paramilitaries. And they both share the same idea of fighting the communism and the left wing. And, uh, and there were evidence that the army trained them and they actually cheer armament. Uh, but somehow that is stopped it technically. Uh, but there is a lot of legacies of that relationship and that mentality that no matter what, uh, they, they needed to use all the resources possible to fight uh, the, the guerrillas. So yes, there, there, there is enough evidence to say that there were a point in, in the history that that happens, but the army have struggles to accept that and to acknowledge how that works or um, or even contribute with the uh, to disentangle why we did that. Like many of the soldiers, I I know some of them that they really genuinely they were trying to do their job and they were actually against of that uh, cooperation. Uh, some of them actually 
refused to continue in the army because of that. So it's not that uh, was uh, not people there resisting, but the problem is that the army as an institution is being unable to actually acknowledge that happens. Well, how about FARC? Why did they, ex what did, how did they react to the peace process? Well, and what were their hopes? Um, we learned a lot from previous intent. Like we, we, we tried to do like a lot of peace agreements before with the FARC, and one of the le lessons is was that we needed to involve the army in the negotiation. So actually, the army was uh, and the police as well was part of the negotiation. And when were we good? I mean, uh, did. The disarmament and demobilization process of the FARC was very successful because somehow in the Havana, the, because the FARC, they were military as well, they get along really good with the militaries in Colombia because they, they share kind of the same language and the same kind of like cultural mentality. Uh, but on the ground, I think that one of the problems was that the people who was negotiating was not successful enough in convincing the, the, the other people who was not in the negotiation to believe in the peace agreement. Some soldiers that I interviewed, they were like, they, they live it in their own life that the peace agreement was good for them because they were ex less exposed to diet. Uh, they were like more less stressful to go to the field and exposing their lives. I mean, they live it. Uh, but Others, they got radicalized because the next step after a peace agreement is the acknowledgement of the, of the contributions of what the actors did to make possible the war. And that's the part that they don't want to, 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 to acknowledge and they don't want to, to, to be the bad guys of the history, you know? They are trying to, to, to defend themselves and, and, Part of my experience working with them is that we really try to make an effort to acknowledge that there were a lot of people within the army that they also suffer a lot for many reasons. I mean, there there is probably something interesting to 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 say here is that in Colombia, the it's mandatory to to be a soldier for males, but if you have money, you can pay and you you avoid the service. So that is like you have like a filter already of social class. Some most part of the people who go to war is people from the lower classes and per, like mainly from rural areas. These people is usually frontline soldiers. But if you want to be an officer or a general, you pay something extra like a university courses within the army and then you can get that positions. But if you enter as a frontline soldiers, uh, for soldier, you stayed in the same rank for 20 years. You cannot go up. Uh, so for many soldiers uh, or many people in rural areas and, and social low socioeconomic class, the army become a, a, a social uh, possibility to, 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 to ha have a decent life because at least they have like income and a salary and a, a pension. So the people who is in the army is also when I when I was working with the army, I also was working in other projects as a as a, a research assistant, and I realized that the the social demographic of the people who joined the army were not too different from the people who joined the rebels. They were poor people, most part of them peasants without opportunities. So. Um, yeah, that, that's just part of the layers and the complexities there. And What did FARC want to achieve bef when they started? Well, there was a time of the Cuban Revolution, so I will say that... Um, they wanted, they, they, they were in games of this uh, certain political and economic elites and they were in favor of the, a more equal distribution of resources and, and, and this kind of narrative. 
But with the time, um, the things got very complicated because also the narco traffic came. Um, so even though FARC have a lot of like investment in uh, political indoctrination of their members, um, with the time was also they needed to join as well the the cooperation with the narco traffic to continue with the. With them, um, with their ideals, which was, I will say that today they are paying the price of that because they don't have much popularity. Uh, also, the war on drugs narrative is is being against them as well, and people in the cities that they actually don't get touched by the war, uh, and it's actually the people who have more resources to go to vote. Um, they they don't like them at all, uh, and yeah. Also, the way that they started to engage in violence against civilians is being difficult for the FARC now. There is a political party to get uh, more popularity. Uh, they are trying to work in in coalition with left wing political parties, but they, they, in Colombia there is a huge criminalization of the left wing. Even if you are a civilian who never been involved with the guerrilla, if you openly say things that are associated with left wing, you can be considered a military target. So there is a huge kind of like cold war mentality identity in the country where the left is very criminalized. So I will say that the ideals of the FARC, uh, they persist, uh, but the use of the violent means uh, take a lot of their legitimacy behind. Um, So I will say that nowadays I will it's different times, you know, in, in the Cuban revolution, somehow we didn't, we didn't question much about this. We justify the use of violence because of the revolution, but nowadays that's not sustainable anymore. Are people, is the left finding, outside of FARC, is the left finding ways to put forward a program uh, without using violence to promote them? To promote FARC, you no, mean? No, to, 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 is the left. The left wing. Colombia finding ways to promote their vision without using violence. Are they actually seeking other ways? Yeah, or, there is a lot. There is a lot of activism, uh, like com- like organizations on the ground that have been resisting uh, violence, and they have non-violence ways to 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 resist uh, even the FARC and also the state in itself, uh, indigenous communities, peasants. Uh, but today, Colombia, despite of the increase of direct violence because of the end of the direct conflict with the FARC, uh, they, there is an increase in target violence against social leaders, human rights defenders, activists. That are, most of them are associated with the left wing. So there is a still a, a resistance in the society to these political ideas. And actually, most part of these people is was in favor of the peace agreement and particular points of the peace agreement, like, for example, the restitution of land. The uh, Another one that is very, very important is the crop substitution program for illegal crops. Uh, however, last Tuesday, the government decided to return to the aerial fumigation despite of the academic evidence that showed that it cut these kind of interventions cause cancer in peasants. And according with the peace agenda, the government compromised with the peasants that they, that they in, instead of they continue to, to have illegal crops, they will provide alternatives, like real alternatives for this. But the government is being unable to fulfill their promises. In other words, the government agreed to subsidize non-drug-related crops yeah, but they, uh, but, they are, the, but, they, but they haven't carried through with that. 
Most part of the peasants in Colombia that have illegal coca crops, they have that because they don't have another alternative. Sure. But in the peace agreement, the government say, we're going to provide you with resources. We're going to make like roads. There is places that is no roads. So if you, if you have potatoes, you, you don't have the possibility to take it out to sell them. So the state's supposed to do something, but they didn't. And now they're going to just use, again, radical um, measures that is being proven before that they are not working. Like they, they don't have any effect. So what happened at the end is that the, the peasants ending advocating for alternative resources of protection, like for example, the dissidents of the FARC, so they can continue having their crops. So the state is part of the problem in itself because it's unable to address the roots of some of the problems that cause the ongoing violence or, yeah. So has the security forces actually withheld protection from peasants in many cases? And particularly people who uh, demand to change? Well, unfortunately, that's something that I prove in my thesis. In my thesis, I did sorbing experiments and interviews. And I found it that soldiers failing to protect civilians that shared the ideological identity of the rebels, including the ex-rebels that laid out their arms and support the peace agreements. Um, so my thesis demonstrate that soldiers' lack of willingness to protect civilians is related with their ideological bias against the left wing. And actually, if the civilian, for example, show that they support the political reintegration of the rebels, uh, that is a crucial uh, point of the peace agenda, they also will decrease their lack of protection. So for me, that that realization or my intention actually with the, with my thesis was trying to see what were the legacies of the violence in the minds of the soldiers and because the ideological identity is a very important. It's the wartime cleavage in Colombia is left right wing. So I wanted to see if that affected or not the disposition of the soldiers to provide protection to civilians because of their ideological identity. And my thesis showed that that's actually the case. Will your thesis be published? I hope so. I hope so. Well, um, how do you feel about going back to Colombia after your PhD? Will it be safe for you? Well, um, I actually don't know. I have that question uh, when I was uh, finishing my thesis because I, I submitted in the, t the 26th of February and currently is in under evaluation. And um, I think that the way that I approach the, the, the issue in itself is beyond, um, I, I don't want to accuse the army in itself. I just want to prove that the war affect the mentality of the individuals that are part of the army inevitably. And we, if we need to do certain transformation with the army, we need to consider how we're going to deconstruct the enemy image that the soldiers have in their minds. Because it's obviously, if you've been fighting for more than five decades in getting a, against a left-wing guerrilla, well, that's have consequences. And, and, and yes, you can sign a peace agreement, but what are you going to do afterwards? And, and as an academic, I wanted to prove that actually that was the case and show it to the army, hey, if you really want to do your job correctly, you need to address these difficult things that you probably don't acknowledge. And I wanted to show you with uh, a rigorous research. So I hope that with my relation that I that I did with the army, I built a lot of like was years of building trust with them, allowed me to to have difficult conversations with them that are necessary to address. For them as well. I mean, if they really want to have the legitimacy that they want from the people, they need to learn how to acknowledge their own 
potential violence, bi bias and how the violence affect, uh, or the history of violence affect them. So I'm kind of like, that's my hope, probably I'm so naive, uh, uh, but my hope is that I, can, uh, that I can frame this as an opportunity for them to change and do the things better. So if I go back to Colombia, uh, uh, that will be my argument for them. How do you expect and hope things will work out in Colombia, politically and socially, in the me medium to long term? <laughs> well, uh, the pandemic is making the things worse for Latin America in general as a continent. We, we have a lot of inequality. In Colombia, 70% of the population work in informal jobs. So they really need to go out to, to survive. So the pandemia is not making the things better for us and, and, and it's exacerbating all of the social tensions that we already have. So it's difficult to have hope. However, I think the new generations and generations like mine, we are resisting really good to certain stuff. We are more vocal than, than the previous generations and, and hopefully, um, I mean, look, Chile, Chile and the student mobilization in 2019 provoke that today they are like replacing the constitution that was introduced during the military rule decades ago. I mean, Chile was under a constitution that was written during the military and now yes. they're going to change it. So there is hope. There is hope there. The South American governments on the left have taken up socialist or even or social democratic economic policies. How much of their failings have to do with poor economic choices and how much to do you think with the economic and political leverage of the United States and its allies? Well, look countries like Uruguay. Uruguay is a Example of success in terms of left-wing or social democratic um, interventions and policy and leadership, uh, but today Latin America turned to the right wing. I think is more like a global uh, problem. Look, Europe. Europe is having the same problem with extreme right-wing people on power position. Hungary is an example. Like Even in Germany, in the local uh, leadership, there is a lot of right-wing extremism and, and the states, and that resonates as well in Latin America. And beyond of the economic decisions, it's more about the narratives and the style of the government of the biggest leaders. And the problem with the left in, in Latin America is that uh, we still have this um, fear of the left win, uh, the, I will say that Chavez in, uh, have the possibility to do a lot of stuff, but he relied in the oil to make his program successful, which was, I think, a, a mistake in itself. But uh, the narrative was something that was actually interesting to see because the, when he was alive, the Venezuelan people, the poor people, finally got the possibility to feel that the people who was on power represent them. So there is something there that was viable. And, and, and I think that we still have, like, again, it's like a kind of this bigger fear of the communism that is reinforcing, but the, but the states, because the states have the same. Uh, so even though, like, if you want, like, public health, that's for someone, like, from the state is like, oh, you're a communist. And that also resonates somehow in Latin America. So I will say there is more, like, like there is a role of ideological biases there and how we understand ideology as citizens. Um, yeah, like... Oh, how do you get over that? Well, there is kind of like a change in terms of generations. That's what the the, the, yeah. the surveys show us somehow. Um, in the United States, it's younger people that supported uh, the more radical candidate for president, um, Bernie Sanders. 
It was people under 30. Yeah. Is that the case in Latin America? Well, before in the, our president, like the last presidential elections in Colombia, we were po we were polarized. The Ivan Duque, extreme right, and were Gustavo Petro, who was left wing. Gustavo Petro was a former member of a guerrilla a guerrilla group that demobilized in the in the nineties eighties, and Ivan Duque won the election, but like very few difference. So there is people still that they, they want to give it a chance to the left, but there is a lot of fear. And what happened in Venezuela actually was very bad for the left because everybody is like, oh, if you vote for the left, you're going to end like Venezuela. So people is actually using that. The politicians use that as an example to scare people to, oh, don't vote because for these political ideas, because look how Venezuela, what happened there. So... Um, I will say that that is there, but the new generations are, and especially my generation is the first generation that we're supposed to be, or we actually are the most educated generation in Latin America under capitalism and democracy in the whole region. And we are the one who suffered the most of the consequences of the neoliberalism. We are unable to buy a house. We are unable to actually have a proper decent jobs. So it's like we're supposed to be the ones who will join, like, like yeah, we, we will probably benefit from democracy and capitalism and all of that, but doesn't happen. And we are like super educated most, most of, like, in comparison with previous generation. We, we, we did what was the recipe from the Chicago boys and this that doesn't work. So I think that we are very aware of that and now it's like, no, this doesn't work. We need to change, we need to change. Well, thank you very much for coming on and I wish you well uh, and I wish Latin America well. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.